Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to A Freedom of Ideas. As always, I am your host, Corey DiBiase. Now, first, I, as I think you know, I typically like to dive kind of right into the right into the meat of what we're going to be talking about for the day, but today we're going to take a brief diversion. We're going to talk about the title of the show, at least as it is listed in your little podcast app there, and the fact that, the, more specifically, we're going to talk about the fact that the title might not actually be in what you would technically call the actual English language. So here's the thing. I am convinced, and when I say I'm convinced, I, I, I don't, there is not a shred of doubt in my mind, which is, by the way, usually, you know, talk about a red flag. That's usually a huge red flag. But that said, there's not a, 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 a not a scintilla of doubt in my mind that there is such a word as entrancelment, not entrancement, but entrancelement. Um, the, and, and just as a, as a brief definition, uh, this would be, it's kind of a more active version of entrancement. So if, for example, you could be entranced by a sunset. We, we, we all know that a sunset is not out there trying to entrance us. It doesn't have intentionality. It's not sort of consciously working toward this end of entrancement, uh, the entrancement that you experience when you watch it. Entrancement, by contrast, that's something that someone has to do that to. Someone or something has to intend to do that. A wizard entrances you uh, with their 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 spell, that that kind of thing. Um, and I've always really liked the word. I, I mean, it's not one that I'm I'm called upon to use frequently, obviously. But you know, when you're going to use it, what what there's it really is kind of there's no better word to use but that word. But here's the problem. As I'm going about this process of of just you know writing the notes for the essay, of course, first thing I do is uh, is uh, for for the episode rather is you know, pop the title up right right at the top of the the word document, and it gives me a no. This is not right. This is not a properly spelled word. So I I go in and I try and fix it because I'm a terrible speller. And so who knows? Man, I could easily maybe the L's got to go in front of the E or who knows what's going to happen. So fine, words got nothing for me on this. No, there's no, there's no recognition of this existing as a word in in the dictionary of of the program that I that I use. Uh, um, so, so fine. So I, I go to the the Google machine, which usually that's got a much broader, um, uh, much broader palette, right? It's going to find something. It didn't find anything. It didn't find anything. There is no listing of this word seeming to exist anywhere. I even turned to the collective wisdom of Twitter and, and um, had some nice interactions. And don't get me wrong, if, if, uh, if you're listening to the show and we interacted on that or anything, it's wonderful to, to talk with folks. But certainly no, no increased degree of certainty about this word. I would have to go so far as to say that all evidence, anything that I can put my hands on as evidence right now as to whether this word does or does not exist, all of that would have to point to the word does not exist. And yet, we come back to, I know for a fact that it does. I know for a fact that it does. I know I have said it, which, yes, I know, that doesn't mean that it, it exists. But I know that I've heard it. I know that I've read it. I know that I've seen this word. Despite the fact that no search engine I've used has seemed to reveal it existing anywhere on the internet, which has a lot of words on it. But 
That said, I am not going to bow to this pressure. The, uh, the word is staying right there. Um, the word is what we're going to use. The title of this episode is an epiphenomena episode on quantum entrancelment. Now, why not just bend and say, make it qu quantum entrancement, right? That's easy. Well, the, the problem there is it lacks the rhythm of the, of the pun. Um, uh, if, um, uh, quantum entanglement. Uh, that's the, just the number of syllables. You can't say quantum entrancement for quantum entanglement. You've got to say quantum entrancelment. That's, I mean, that's, that's the way the pun really works. And more importantly, I know this, I, I just know this word exists. I know it exists. I refuse to believe it doesn't, despite the evidence that uh, I see in front of me. And what's probably going to end up happening with all of this is that I'm going to find that, oh, yes, yes, this word exists. Here is the context. Maybe it's a classical thing. Maybe someone, maybe one of you will come to me with the evidence that I seek. Um, and remember, you know, this is the important thing about evidence. It's only evidence if it proves what I want it to prove. I mean, let's just be very, very clear about that right now. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, or I, or rather what I presume will happen is that I will find that this word does in fact exist. But the whole reason I went on this search in the first place, i.e., to make sure that I was spelling the word correctly in the title that I put out into the world, it's probably going to turn out that I misspelled it. And it's just going to be there. And here, for the record, I'm going to leave it there. Just going to leave it there. And that's going to be that. But that's a whole long thing. Um, but while we're on the uh, sort, of, uh, sort of words and definitions and that kind of thing, just a, a brief note, and we're going to talk about this this uh, particular word a little more today. As I, a couple episodes back, uh, in an episode entitled uh, "Medieval Memes," to introduce this idea of memes, I I, I I I I defined the word as it is used by Richard Dawkins. I went so far as to spell the word, and it wasn't until I went to the aforementioned uh, social media, the, the the Twitter, to then talk about the episode and say, so this is this is what we we did this week. Come and have a listen. Um, it was only then that it occurred to me that, okay, perhaps people on Twitter have heard of memes before. Perhaps this is not a brand new concept. Now, perhaps, as we will actually discuss today, the idea has become dare I say, a trifle more banal than, than, it, than it was when, when uh, Richard Dawkins first uh, developed it, uh, maybe a trifle less comprehensive, maybe uh, a, a meme on Twitter is not quite so much of what we would think of as a, as a building block of the edifice of mind as what we were hoping to talk about. But just to say that as I was actually spelling the word meme for an audience that I have at least in part garnered through social media, I just couldn't help but take a moment and say, you know, I, I get it. That, that was maybe, that was maybe unnecessary. The spelling, the spelling. If I hadn't done the spelling, I probably wouldn't bring it up. But I, I spelled it for you. I spelled it for you. And that's, that's tough. I just needed to get that one. Just needed to put that in its proper place. But it is interesting as, as we're discussing all this that of course, as I say, uh, a meme as we use it on Twitter, that's not exactly what, what Dawkins was talking about. That is not comprehensively what Dawkins was talking about. He's talking about a, a much broader array of different ideas and thoughts that can be conveyed between us. But um, even if it is not exactly what he meant, it, it is funny that, it, that, of course, an internet meme does, it is an example 
of memes, right? It is an example of what of what Dawkins was discussing. Um, <clears throat> So it's this kind of idea that it floats around, it it, it gloms onto the mind, and it's it's thereafter reproduced mind upon mind upon mind, kind of regardless of the medium. Of course, we know internet memes obviously depend on social media, depend on the internet, and of course, it would make sense to argue that uh, a, a meme for what men be like and the meme that is Hamlet's soliloquy, those are of course operating on two different levels. But they're still fundamentally both memes in exactly the way Dawkins suggests. But but it is interesting as an aside to see how this process of mimetic evolution, or if we'd like to be more simple, let's just say the process of mimesis per se, the way that ideas are copied and transferred and sent hither and yon. Now, an internet meme has what we might call a comparatively spoiled life, you know, at least in, in comparison to its forebears. Time was that a meme had to cling to a vinyl record or to, uh, heaven forfend, a book, or maybe even to a traveling troupe of actors if it wanted to have any chance at reproduction. Now, the meme for a cat whose head has been visually imaged into a piece of toast that has more opportunities to transfer itself in a day, in an afternoon, than Hamlet likely did for a, the first number of centuries of its existence. And yet, for all that, memes don't ha seem to have quite the same sway that they once did, or at least, they, at least not the, quite the same kind of influence. It's as if we used. Uh, it's as it's as if we used to consist of of say fifty genes. I'm just using a silly scientific example here. Say we used to consist of only fifty genes. It took fifty genes to make up a, a human being. Um, now, in a case like that, every one of those genes is of course going to be significantly influential. Um, but now we depend on however many millions of, of genes. So, of course, each, the volume of each gene, the, the sway that it has is going to be much, much less comparatively. Now, that science might be all pretty murky, and I'm sure that it is. But if we move that analogy over into thinking about memes, I think it absolutely must be the case with memes that um, the, the, that volume, the number of them that we are that we're acquiring and exposed to, that that matters. So uh, you know, again, so not just internet memes and pictures and sen sentence fragments, uh, but the comprehensive idea of memes that Dawkins talks about—that of sort of all transferable ideas. Um, so we run through these things, if we think about it, we run through these things at a shocking rate. And I'm not just talking about when we're scrolling through Twitter, although that, of course, is a, a fantastic example of just barraging the mind with idea after idea after idea, very few of which are ever going to pierce that deeply into the nature of of who and what we are, right? Um but, you know, take beyond that. We can watch a season of television in, in a single day. Uh, we can scroll through, again, scroll through the, the internet, go through 50 pictures, all that kind of stuff. We soak up these glib sort of silly ideas uh, It's it, like it was sort of so much intellectual candy corn. And, of course, the effect is ultimately quite similar. All of which means nothing in particular, aside from the fact that we're surely in a period of of, well, I'd say profound change. Um, and we're going to talk about this much more in later episodes. But when we think about the way 
information moves around. That's changed radically. The way we gather it, the way we soak it up, the way we're exposed to it, all of that has changed very, very significantly. And obviously, this I'm not saying this is my unique little discovery that I alone have realized that um, sitting with my, my phone and flicking through Twitter is is a very different experience than, than maybe being able to get my hands on the one newspaper in the town or something like that. Obviously, I know. I didn't kind of invent that insight. That's, that is a meme that has been around. And yet I think when we start factoring it into the way we start, as we move over into the social political notions of freedom that we want to discuss, I think we're going to see that that this has a really interesting effect that, that maybe we haven't discussed in, in, in certain other contexts. But, um, uh, you know, at the very least, uh, it certainly is something that we want to consider when if you believe the kind of analogy I put together, when we think about the way our minds are constructed, that our minds are essentially built of all these ideas, not just what the vessel of mind is filled with, but that the mind itself is constructed of the ideas that it has soaked up and the way it has the opportunity to soak those ideas up. Same is true of freedom, same is true of consciousness, same is true of selfhood. All of these th things are ideas made of ideas. If we are what we eat, well, maybe that little glib candy corn uh, analogy I put out before uh, when in terms of the way we interact intellectually with the world, but maybe that's something we want to think about, but for the moment, it is neither here nor there. But back to quantum physics, the uh, ostensible purpose of this episode, now that we have now that we've assumed a number of other purposes along the way here, back to quantum physics. My bottom line on quantum physics, and we're, this is what the episode will discuss, but I kind of want to give you my conclusion first, and then we'll fill out how we end up getting to it. Um, when we try to apply this idea, this, this idea of quantum physics, quantum mechanics, um, when we try and apply it to thinking about mind and free will and selfhood and all, all the rest, which has been done, and we'll talk about that, that it's really just yet another form of what we might call our kind of magical thinking, whether that's, you know, of course, it, it started with with souls, we thought of the soul as being the source of all these things. Uh, we saw Wilder Penfield taking a slightly different tact, but fundamentally going back to that same dynamic of needing mystery, needing something that was deeply recessed in the quote-unquote mind as a as a means to explain it. Um, and, you know, going all the way back to our, our famous medieval monks and, and the work that they were doing of, of kind of patterning our mind in such a way that, that we would accept no explanation of the mind that didn't include these kind of mysterious recessive pieces. Well, my conclusion with all this, with, as we look at the way, and I say my conclusion, once again, Daniel Dennett's conclusion that I am trying to incorporate into this uh, framework that we're putting together here, Daniel Dennett and a number of other thinkers like him have kind of come to the conclusion that like, okay, we talk about quantum physics in relation to these questions of mind, and the bottom line is that it always seems like we are uh, we're coming back to these kinds of patterns of magical thinking. But um, in any event, let us let me go back and, and build up to that point, and we'll see if we can come to a, 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 uh, some agreement on it. Now, you may recall, originally, we brought up quantum mechanics when we were, when we were deep in the midst of our worry about, quote-unquote, hard determinism. Um, we haven't talked about determinism in a, in a couple weeks, and I'm glad we're coming back to it to kind of put a bow on that. 
Uh, now, first, you'll recall what determinism is generally. It's this worry that instead of our our really being able to make actual free choices, that human beings are just driven to make the choices that we do because of any kind of quote-unquote outside influence, um, whether that's the way we were raised or our culture or our genetics or um, really, really whatever. Um, and, and all that is one thing, those kind of outside what we might consider more social or nurture uh, influences that we experience. But so-called hard determinism, quote-unquote hard determinism, that's, that's a little bit more of a concern for me because I think those other things, like when we think about our upbringing, we balance the extent to which it determines us against the extent to which it defines us. Like we, you know, we want to have some definition. We want to have a background. We want to have preferences. We want to have um, this sort of context within which to make choices. So yeah, sure, the way I was raised is influencing the choices I'm making now. As long as I'm not completely oblivious to that fact, and as long as I'm able to think about it and factor it in, and it doesn't have so much influence over me that it truly is dominating the way I think, well, that's actually good. It's good to have some context in the world. It's good to be defined enough in the world that there's a reason that I make the choices that I do. So we always end up with that balancing point there that, yeah, of course, I'm not absolutely free when I say I want pancakes. That's not really the point. I, I don't necessarily want to be. I, I want to be somewhat enthralled to the memories that make me like pancakes so much. That's that's kind of the point. But when we talk about this hard determinism, again, I, I feel like this is somewhat more of a philosophical concern, not one that, that we can't get around, and, and we're actually going to get around it today, I think, um, but still one that philosophically we need to spend a little bit more time on. So just by way of a refresher, the idea of hard determinism is this. If we live in a fundamentally Newtonian world, Meaning, of course, a world in which everything material, all the physical stuff, the normal boring physical stuff of the world, interacts in a fundamentally mechanical way. That's what we can count on with, with Newtonian physics is that this stuff is it's bouncing around out there like billiard balls uh, and it's being influenced by force and acceleration and mass and all that stuff. The, the apple falling from a tree, whatever, whatever you like. But fundamentally, it comes down to a pretty well-ordered mechanical system. But if because we are naturalists and because we say, well, yeah, that normal, boring, physical stuff, that's the same normal, boring, physical stuff that, that, that makes up the world is the same normal, boring, physical stuff that makes up me, makes up my brain, makes up essentially, fundamentally who I am. So again, if everything that exists is to some extent normal, boring, physical stuff, physical matter, and thus subject to the laws of nature, to sort of this Newtonian mechanical worldview. Um, and if it's all operating, therefore, in what we would call a pretty predictable way, or actually, in, we could say an absolutely predictable way, if we had the capacity to sort of calculate on that level, well, then, oughtn't it to follow that that we could predict any future state of the world based on the present state of the world, right? That that's our 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 uh, 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 Laplacian demon who's uh, who understands the world so well that she can predict it because it's really just working out the physics of how all these these physical uh, states interact, and you can look into the future just by doing that kind of calculation. But if that's the case, 
well, then that would have to apply to me as well, right? Because I'm just made of all this normal, boring, physical stuff. Um, so it's, 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 I mean, it really is theoretically exactly like saying that, uh, okay, the entire universe consists of the same kind of interaction as what happens when we um, take billiard ball number one and we hit billiard ball number two. Um, and if we know exactly how that interaction takes place, the exact force, the exact angle, all the other physical factors, then we should be able to calculate. If we know all those factors, and we never do, but if we did, then we should be able to calculate in advance exactly what that other billiard ball will do. Um, well, if all that's true on the level of billiard balls, and we're just made up of the same stuff as billiard balls, lo and behold, it seems almost an inescapable conclusion that we are dominated by these same predictable deterministic forces as everything else. Um, so again, if I can predict the state of the world five minutes from now based on doing Newtonian physics uh, sort of calculations and understanding the interaction of all the physical stuff in the world as our, our, um, our Laplacian demon can do, well, then we have to be part of that equation. There's no special, exciting, whatever we called it, our special, exciting, ethereal stuff that's going to come in and save us. We're just normal, boring, physical stuff, and that's the way it's all going to work out. But wait, you say, um, th that that worldview, of course, is, is going to take is, is going to take no account whatsoever for the notion of human agency, of free will. Yeah, well, yes, of course, that's exactly the point. That's why we bring it up is free will doesn't fit. If the world is just one big machine and we are cogs within it, then yes, of course, that that description makes it pretty clear. There simply is no room for free will at that point. So then, if that's our concern, if the worry is we, that we live in this mechanical world in which every action is ultimately predictable, and that, again, including our own, including our choices, including our thoughts, including our ideas, everything else, well, this is actually where quantum physics can come into play in a, in a kind of an interesting way. Um, and, and it does serve a purpose, but we need to be careful of how much of a purpose we ask it to serve. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But first, let, let me start with a very, very limited definition of quantum theory, which I am, because I am not a, a physicist of any kind, never mind a quantum physicist, I keep bouncing around from quantum theory, quantum physics, quantum mechanics. Um, suffice to say that on the level that we are going to use these ideas, I don't think it matters too much to make careful distinctions between those things. If you want to actually talk about quantum physics with someone who understands it on a level that I certainly do not, aside from as a, a kind of abstraction that fits into these logical uh, mechanisms that we're putting together here, then yes, we'd want to draw much carefuler uh, distinctions. But for us, for me, uh, the key thing to know about quantum is that, as it turns out, when we dig down deep enough into the fabric of the physical world, when I mean, I'm, I'm talking like uh, potentially the, the subatomic level. It, it, it turns out that if we do that, it, we don't live in this nice mechanical Newtonian world that that we pretty much end up assuming we do because that's what our that's the world we perceive. That's the world that you know with our billiard balls that we're um, in, in the world we live in. It seems like we do live in this me very mechanical universe, but. But in fact, it, it turns out we really don't on a more basic level of the, the foundational structure of the universe. 
So we have these endless uh, sort of unseen factors of, of randomness and probability and, and even the effect that our capacity for observation has on the nature of the universe as it is observed. Um, so so it, with all this, with these factors that we mix in in quantum physics that are, are nice ordered uh, sort of almost mechanical Newtonian world, it gets turned into this uh, this one that's that's so random, so changeable, so unpredictable in so many ways that for us, for our instincts, for the, the way that we have sort of developed our instincts living in the physical world, Honestly, quantum physics seems, in in many cases, not to not to feel very real at all. It feels it feels uh, like a sort of fantastical uh, universe that that um, that you'd only hear about in sci-fi or something like that. But people who know and people who have done the research say, no, this is the fundamental nature of the universe as it stands. So again, in, in short, really restricting the relevance of of this discussion about quantum to just what we're looking for here. Um, if we don't live in a universe of ultimately predictable billiard balls colliding one after the other in this mechanical way that's very predictable, um, and, you know, if our, our, our famous, if Laplace's demon, um, if, if she were to show up in this quantum mechanical world that, that we're talking about here rather than the Newtonian physical world, she wouldn't be able to count on the predictability of the universe and all of these interactions to help her do these calculations to see the future. In fact, she'd have to find a way to, again, like I said, to, to sort of factor the impact of her own observation on the way it's influencing the things she is observing. She, she'd view this world that seemed alternately random or dominated uh, by this kind of holy, what, seemed, what would seem to her, because she's a classical Newtonian thinker, as we know, it would seem like this totally bizarre kind of logic or just a complete lack of logic that was dictating how the world operated. She'd see the universe itself creating copies of itself at various turning points and then having multiple, perhaps practically infinite versions of the same reality operating uh, in a slightly different but ultimately in a fundamentally parallel fashion all at the same time. So not only is there just the one very hyper, super complex uh, world that she's got to think about. Now there are kind of infinite copies of the, this world going on out there, all existing at once, probably not interacting with one another, but that's way past my pay grade. And then this is the world that suddenly she has to factor and consider and try to make predictions based upon. So with all that, rather than trying to understand how one billiard ball is affecting the course and the velocity of another, she wouldn't even be able to say where one billiard ball ends and the next one begins, or even how to distinguish a billiard ball from the, the sort of physical context that it was in. Um, so I, I, I mean, I'm assuming, I, I don't know her well, as I've, as I've established, but I'm assuming if we put her in this world, She's going to pretty quickly throw up her hands and say, no, I, this is not this is not at all what I signed up for. So and which that opens up an opportunity. Maybe she then goes and applies this massive brilliance to uh, to 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 a, a very hard problem, but one that is at least theoretically solvable, even if no one has solved it before. Like, you know, I mean, I, don't know, I was just thinking, for example, she could maybe help out the, the Eagles on draft day, right? I mean, no one's ever managed to solve that problem before, but but maybe in the future, she could with her massive brilliance. But, you know, I, I, I don't know, but that's, that's, uh, 
that's a, that's a, that's a conversation for another day. Um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe a Monday morning. I don't know. What do you think about that? Anyway, uh, let's, let's get back on, on track here. Perhaps with all that we've said about quantum, you can kind of predict the way some philosophers at attempt to use this, these extremely strange workings, uh, in their own philosophical arguments about our freedom. Now, on the one hand, uh, we, um, we have, uh, there is one thing that I, I think it does do, and I think is very helpful to us. It's, it's our chaos, right? It's, it takes us out of this purely mechanical world in which it is possible to predict all of our actions. And that's helpful to us, right? Because that means like, okay, at least we can kind of set to the side this worry that we are just cogs in a larger machine. Because because the machine is just something, I mean, maybe it still is that predictable, but we certainly cannot predict it. We don't, we don't fundamentally know what the mechanical operations are of the universe anymore. I mean, believe me, there are people who know much, much, much more than I do, but I've never heard anyone say that our understanding of quantum physics is such that that we could essentially reproduce the kind of certainty that we had with Newtonian physics. And that, in fact, that's kind of the point, is that level of certainty simply no longer exists. So at least insofar as that's the case, we're off the hook worrying about the notion that we are just cogs in the physical machine of the world. Um, and again, I, I, I'm fine with this argument up to that point, up to the point that we're just kind of crossing off what seemed like an irrational argument to us, maybe from the start, this notion that we were just part of a kind of mechanical system that we weren't making any choices at all. Well, we can just get rid of that worry. It, it dispels our concerns about the ultimately mechanical predictability of the universe. But the problem is, at least for me, and obviously there are, there are uh, very reputable thinkers who would disagree with this read, but for me, uh, more importantly for Dennett and for a number of other thinking, thinkers like him, um, the idea for many philosophers that we have this, this new kind of mystery stuff, right? This new stuff we can't understand, this new kind of uncertainty. So now I'm sure by this point, whenever I start talking about mysteries and things that are unpredictable and things that we can't understand, well, I'm pretty sure that when I start talking about that by now for you, I've gotten very predictable indeed. So you, you see where I, I'm going with this. Um, uh, there's been this trend to enlist quantum physics wherever we feel like our quote unquote normal boring physical stuff isn't getting the explanatory job done. Now, so it's whenever we feel like we have that, that urge to say, oh, geez, this just isn't right. How can it be that, that this normal, boring physical stuff accounts for the magical experience that is me? Well, whenever we get to that crossroads, lo and behold, in comes quantum physics, at least for a number of thinkers. Now, my first encounter was this was in studying the nature of consciousness per se, uh, which is fascinating. It's very related, as we've talked about, but I'm not going to go too far afield. But fundamentally, we're asking, how is it possible that a bunch of clearly not conscious cells can be lashed together in such a way that it produces consciousness and ultimately then produces me, of course, meaning the cells in, in the brain, my unique mind, my unique perspective, my unique perceptions. And perhaps even more importantly, the sensation of being me with my unique mind, my unique perceptions, uh, my choices, all the rest of it. 
the experience of being a, a conscious creature in the world, as we've talked about, has this almost magical feel to it. And a lump of normal, boring, physical stuff just instinctively, we feel like it just can't account for that. And, and now we, we've talked uh, again and again and again about this kind of instinctive objection that that I feel like most of us have. When we really press ourselves on it, I feel like most of us feel this sense that, no, 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 it can't be that this lump of flesh, this normal, boring, physical stuff, get, it really accounts for what it's like to have a mind and uh, and therefore to to have that experience of having a mind, which is the experience that accompanies every other experience I've ever had and ever will have. It's the experience of what it means to be me and to be who I am and to be everything I, 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 I've ever felt or known or wondered or everything else. And you're telling me that that we can try and explain that with some mush, mushy lump of, you know, gray matter. Well, it, it, it just won't do it, it. There has to be more. So, you know, when we come back to the same place, we've talked about all this, what are my options? Well, we started with a soul. That's great, right? I mean, that when um, if a soul's the route we want to go, if that fits our explanatory framework, then great, that it sounds perfect. It allows us to explain all these things. Um, but of course, that's not something I can do in my, my naturalistic framework. Um, there's no souls included in my quote-unquote assemble an agent toolkit as a, natu as a naturalist. So, um, this puts me back with my normal, boring, physical stuff and uh, my un my otherwise unaware and uninspired lump of flesh. Um, and it's in that that sort of mess and that boringness that I'm looking for this this special spark of of coriness, quote unquote. Um, and so what could be sufficiently mysterious and unpredictable and unexplainable and and you know darn near magical enough to create the experience of consciousness? in this otherwise normal, boring, physical stuff. How can I keep being a naturalist? How can I, how can I maintain that conviction, but also have something as mysterious and exciting as a soul to use in explaining who and what I am? So, of course, enter quantum physics. Um, and for many, an exceptionally brilliant mind. And I should say, these include none other than, you know, Francis Crick, who is uh, obviously an intellect on a level that I, I, I cannot, uh, can't criticize the, the arc of, the, of this guy's work. Uh, and, and numerous other folks have, have come to this same conclusion. For them, quantum physics has proved to be this kind of alluring stand-in for, for those souls that we as naturalists are not allowed to say that we have. So... Faced with the danger of being told that we're really just a combination of boring old flesh made of boring old cells, uh, and you know, as we're trembling under the threat of to our that threat to our existential vanity that says, "Oh, we can't just be that simple stuff." Well, quantum is the tall, dark stranger that wanders into town just when we thought all hope was lost. So quantum mechanics becomes the the unexplainable, you know, you know, or at least sufficiently very hard to explain and unpredictable and infinitely variable factor that we can mix in with our normal boring physical stuff in such a way that our explanation will account for the magical feeling of the experience of being me or for you, the magical experience of being you, or for the next person and the next person and the next person. I, uh, I think you get my point. It's, it's my, my uh, sort of impulse towards solipsism notwithstanding. 
I do understand it's not just me that that that, that thinks he's kind of the, the center of the universe. And that's actually an instinct that that we all can fall into and probably should work to not fall too deeply into. But that's a, that's another conversation entirely. Now, again, I don't want to be entirely dismissive of this argument, this notion that quantum physics does some an explanatory job here that nothing else has been able to. Um, and again, I'm going to say far smarter folks than myself, uh, far more learned folks than myself. They are they're very convinced by this. They're writing books about this. This is not some silly crackpot thing that oh wow i found this on the you know on 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 the internet and i'll tell you guys about it because it's so funny now this is this is a real thing people take this very seriously um but it always seems to me and again to to others as well uh that we're trying to account for things that we don't understand and you know i've said this in a number of different ways a number of different uh, d- different times here we're accounting for things that we don't understand like consciousness, like free will, like intentionality, like selfhood, by just kind of popping into the explanation, we're just popping in another thing that we don't understand, in this case, quantum physics. And we're doing that for no other reason, it seems to me, for no other reason than that we that we don't fully understand either one. So we're kind of matching mysteries and hoping that that counts for understanding, which it does not, but you know, allow me to continue here. So it's like it's like in saying that instead of uh, instead of saying that we have a lock and a key, which is how we might often think of explanations. We have the mystery, the lock, the uncertainty, and the key is what opens that up and dispels the mystery and the uncertainty. We actually have two mysterious locks, and we're just we're just trying to smash them together and hope that. Uh, maybe one of them pops open, or maybe the, the just we the fact that neither one is open, we want to be okay with that. Or I, I don't, I don't quite understand what the logic is that says that this inexplicable factor or a factor that we don't fully understand helps us understand something else that we don't fully understand. But again, I, in my opinion, this so much comes back to our essentially metaphysical vanity of saying my mind has got to be more than just this normal, boring physical stuff. But uh, I digress. And, and I, I, w- I will say again, if I'm giving this argument too little respect, the idea is not just silly. There are folks out there that, that really think about it a, a lot. And, and there's, but, yeah, you know, there's, there's one philosopher and I don't, uh, I'm not going to give you a, a name because I haven't really worked through uh, this person's work to the extent that I should. I know enough to know that I'm not wild about the argument but uh, but just to give you a sense of how folks are putting this in place um there's a philosopher that essentially talks about uh essentially what is the mechanism if we say that quantum physics helps us explain free will well exactly how does that happen uh this philosopher goes so far as to attempt to chart the sort of exact instant within the process of making a, a decision uh making a choice that quantum kind of has to pop into the equation, turn the process random, give us the room to make a really free choice, allow us the space for real undetermined choice making, and then kind of bop back out again. I, I, um, 
And, and he points out actually, as he's talking about, he's really charting out like exactly what does it look like, even on a neurophysical level, what does it look like as we're making a choice down to the the millisecond and perhaps even uh, more precisely than that. Um, he points out as he's doing this, charting this out millisecond by millisecond, that we really only need quantum uh, mechanics to intervene once to sort of set the precedent for our future choice making. So say the first time that I formally choose pancakes, um, the, 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 the first time I freely made that choice of pancakes, well, that's the time that quantum physics intervened. And after that, I've just been choosing, quote unquote, choosing uh, pancakes um, in a very deterministic way. After that first real free choice that I made, after that, it's I'm actually just doing it in a way that's determined by that earlier choice. But it doesn't matter because the 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 freedom of the original choice that sets the precedent for the future choices, well, that that just kind of paved the way for it and made it so that all future choices that fall in line with that free choice, well, they kind of get to bask in the glow of that of that uh, that original freedom. But what's never explained, as, as this philosopher is talking about this process of, as I say, like step by step, how are choices getting made? He just sort of points to like, well, and here's where quantum physics comes in. I, I've never had it explained to me how that happens. Like, how does quantum physics know to pop in right then and to do this very specific job? But again, I'm kind of making fun at this point. This, by the way, is a real theory, but um, it's... it's uh, I, it just it I, I underline it somewhat unfairly because I haven't done the work of really digging into this uh, into this work, but I've read enough to know that this it just doesn't resonate with me how these these different pieces fit. Um, but again, knowing that I haven't given this argument enough time, I, I think we're going to leave this again. This was supposed to be one of our nice little short little episodes, and uh, I, that just doesn't seem to be within my bailiwick to make short little episodes, but. Um, will suffice to say that, you know, for whatever arguments I've given, I certainly don't buy this this way of using quantum physics as the new kind of mystery that um, that makes us feel better instead of explaining the fact that of free will, it sort of makes us feel better about the fact that we don't understand it because it pairs it up with something else that we don't understand, which, again, not buying it. And more importantly, again, Dennett doesn't buy it either. Uh, in a far more thoughtful way, he's made the argument that, that I'm really attempting to summarize here, that it is a fallacy that we, as naturalists, um, now we may have accepted that we don't have souls, but we can't accept that these mysterious phenomena of consciousness, of intentionality, of free will, we can't accept that those could possibly result from something as boring as natural matter, our normal, boring, physical stuff. Um, even if, by the way, it's by far the most magical and confusing and intricate combination of normal, boring, physical stuff we could possibly imagine, that doesn't matter. It's just we, we don't like this idea that, that on, in some sense, that's really fundamentally all it takes to, to explain these ideas. Um, but again, so it's, it's just kind of this fallacy that I think a lot of folks fall into, uh, that I wanted to bring back because I said in an earlier episode, we were going to talk about this quantum physics again. And I, uh, kind of had to make some changes to the way I was going to talk about the shows and it got set to the side. And now here we are, at least uh, in all of this, I have not proven myself to be a, a deceptive, 
uh, podcast host who dangles notions of of quantum physics in front of people and then rips them away at the last minute and doesn't doesn't fulfill the the obligations he's set for himself. But in any event. That's really all there is to say here. Uh, aside from, once again, tipping our hats back to this recurring idea that uh, even as we confine ourselves to the scientific, this purely naturalistic approach, there's something about it when we want to talk about any of the features of mind, uh, freedom, consciousness, free will, uh, selfhood, uh, intentionality, all the rest. We just can't seem to help ourselves even as committed naturalists, we can't seem to help ourselves but sort of crawling back towards something very mysterious, um, something essentially unknown as an attempt to, um, to make these explanations work. That's what we saw in Penfield. That's what we're seeing with quantum physics. And if we felt like really diving in, we could rattle off examples of this again and again and again uh, in terms of the modern scholarship that we see going on. But you know, that, that, that's neither here nor there. But for now, I think that's all there is left to say, other than to, as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. I uh, hope to talk to you again. Actually, it'll be tomorrow that the, it's, I'm going to call it conclusion to this series will, will come out. But uh, spoiler alert, it's actually going to be more like the beginning of a conclusion, the first part of a conclusion, as we then will have another episode after that that it's going to be the uh, more of a transition episode to get us from what we've been talking about here, the in, inner recesses of our individual freedom, our individual free will, our individual mind and consciousness, and move us out into our long-promised discussion of what's going on out there in the larger world. What do we start to think about political philosophy? What do we start to think about social philosophy? How do all these, how does this capacity of free will that we've talked about here how does that actually operate out there once we get out of our own heads and actually have to start talking to and dealing with and working with and and potentially impinging on the freedoms of or having our freedoms impinged upon by all those other people out there in the world. But again, that's for the future. For today, simply to say, as always, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll join me for the conclusion to the series tomorrow. And as always, I'm looking forward to it.